Space. The Final Frontier. Captain's Log, 2233. This week, the ultimate exchange between Earth and space, and a reminder that no matter how far we travel, we still have a lot to learn from each other. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. A friend of mine who I got to fly with, he was also from Massachusetts. And the first time on the shuttle, on our first space shuttle mission, we looked out the window and we looked down and we got to see Massachusetts, where we're both from, from space. And it's a geographically very distinct with Cape Cod. And my friend Al Sacco has a very distinctive Massachusetts accent. And Al looked down and he goes, oh my gosh, it looks just like the map. This week, a typical day in space, the dangers of pistachios and zero gravity, and the importance of sharing your story back on Earth. Join us on an amazing journey to the International Space Station, and a reminder that if Earth is a spaceship, we are all crew members. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. My name is Katie Coleman. I'm an astronaut. I retired from NASA about two and a half years ago. And while I was there, I flew twice on the space shuttle Columbia and then spent almost six months on the International Space Station. I've had the pleasure of doing several sharing kinds of programs with the State Department Speakers Program, and it's the most wonderful way to share an experience that I really just don't consider that it's just mine. I think it's it's going to space is so special. We really should share it with everyone. As astronauts, of course, we live to be on missions, and I got to go on three of them. Twice on the space shuttle, the first one was like a precursor to living and working on the space station, figuring out how to do all those experiments. And at the time, it was the longest space shuttle mission. And then the second one was to try to deploy the Chandra X-ray Observatory, which is part of the family of telescopes that NASA has. It's like the sister of the Hubble Space Telescope. They all look at different wavelengths, and Chandra looks at X-rays, which are the really high-energy particles that are given off when galaxies collide, when stars explode, and when things are being sucked into black holes, they're also being spewed out. And that's where we're going to find those X-rays. And it's really special to me to know that uh, a mission that I helped with 20 years ago that was only supposed to work until 2004 is still working today. And to be part of discovering literally everything we know about black holes, to be part of that team meant a lot to me. Thank you.
I spent almost six months up on the International Space Station. As I explained it to my, my son, who was 10 at the time, I launched just before Christmas, and I came home at the end of the school year. And he did actually ask me if maybe I could wait until after Christmas to go. But I explained I didn't really get to choose that. And truthfully, I, I really loved living up there. It felt like being a colonist in a new place, in a new, on a new planet, practically. And I would have spent another six months in a minute if I'd had a chance. What was fascinating to me about living on the space station was in a way how quickly it felt like home and it didn't feel foreign, which to me says there's a lot of ways that we do things down here on earth that we just accept that this is the only way to do them. And then when you go someplace else and they do them differently, you realize, wow, there's a different way in it. You know, it might just be better. It might be more fun in the case of the space station. I will tell you, it's almost always more fun. Well, there's a few things that are not fun up there. First of all is not being able to be with your family is the hardest thing. And a friend of mine, a fellow astronaut, Don Pettit, likes to say that if he could take his family with him, he would never have come home. It just wouldn't have occurred to him. It's a very special place, but it does actually challenge everything that you, you think of as normal. You know, just the fact that everything floats around. You have to sort of transfer things back and forth differently. You learn actually that we naturally from Earth with gravity, we're used to gravity when I want to throw something. I actually aim kind of high in the hopes, in, the, in my case, desperate hopes, that that, will, that ball will curve and end up in the glove of the person it was meant for. But on the space station, you have to start kind of like aiming directly at people's chest because you have to throw things straight. And, and your vocabulary changes. Can you send the duct tape to me? It's, it's just really interesting, this idea that everything can float around. Now, for someone like me, who can lose the remote to the TV at least twice in one night, let alone my phone, it is easier to lose things partly because we had to learn how to look for them differently. When you lose something here on Earth, you're, if you drop it, if you drop your watch, it's going to be somewhere below you. And it really takes work to start looking in a different dimension, in a different direction. favorite examples that I think is easy to understand here on Earth as well is if you look at a picture where maybe people are in space or where you see the people that are upside down. Like when we take a crew photo and everybody's in a ring and some people are on the top upside down, their heads are upside down, and some people are on the bottom, you never want to be one of those people on the top 
because who are upside down, because no one will see you. Every time people look at that picture, they're used to looking at things in the up-down kind of dimension. And yet, if you turn that picture upside down, now you see different people. You have to learn to look at people differently. And and I think sometimes just physically thinking, I'm not going to look at people the same. I'm not going to use the same standards that I use down here. I think it's important to, to sort of just change your mindset and change what you're using as how should this work? I mean, it's, it's easy to think in space like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pour something into a glass. How should this work? And if I use that same phrase, how should this work for when I go to Norway, where I lived as an exchange student, and I think, how should grocery shopping work? How should getting a ride in the car work? How should visiting someone else's house work? Well, when I use that kind of phrase, it reminds me that there's different ways for that to happen that are meaningful to other people. Up on the space station, we are from up to really about 17 different countries. I mean, it's actually more than that when we really count the European Space Agency has about 14 different countries that are members. There's the Japanese Space Agency, the Canadian Space Agency, and the Russian Space Agency, plus the U.S. And we divide that space station just in terms of geography into the Russian segment and then what we call the U.S operating segment, but that's made up of Japanese, Canadian, and all those countries in Europe. But usually we are about three Russians and three people from everywhere else. And I myself was up there with an Italian and uh, two Americans. And then after the three people that were already up there, an American and two Russians, after they landed, another American and two Russians came up. So we had the same mix of countries, but boy, a very different chemistry. Because it's not like one American is like another American, or one Russian is like another Russian. We're all people. And I think if you focus on the fact that we're people, you want to think about what is meaningful. And, and I think questions, asking questions in a way that implies you'd like to understand their world, and it acknowledges that worlds are different. And I, I find that I like that when people ask me about space. I, I would say that something that really dominates the entire equation of living in space and working in space is the mission itself. There's just no question in your mind, in everyone's mind, that the mission is more important than whether you like each other as a crew, whether you feel like doing that part of the mission, whether you wish you were assigned a different part of the mission, or whether you wish that, you know, this wasn't what was on the schedule for today. It's really clear that all, all those things are bigger than you. It, it gives us the luxury of having to join together as a crew. 
because you really there's just no place for you as an individual to stop that train and 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 i think part of that is that when you're when you're living in a spaceship and you know your way of going to bed is floating or flying over to the module where we have windows and looking out at earth and saying hello to some of the places that you love and looking out at space and realizing that it's a huge vast place and our planet is a spaceship in space i mean it is the spaceship earth and many people feel like we're we're off in space but really what i feel like is that it just makes me realize how big earth is i mean earth is part of space and space is part of earth and so when you see those things that are so big and so profound you know deep down inside you you, all all the other petty things just kind of get left by the wayside and the mission is what what really joins us together on earth i usually wake up early try to get some things done actually before my kid wakes up and, and then i rush off to work but in space the way our time works we work on GMT. Noon in London is noon on the space station. We're between Russia and the U.S., and it makes it so neither country has to have people who work in mission control away from their families for the main shift of the operations um, at night. And, and that works out pretty well. But for me, what it means is that just about the time that I should be like going to bed is when my family is home from school and home from work. And so I chose to kind of skew my day to getting up right before I really needed to be awake. I would have already read the introduction to today, the daily the daily uh, message that we get. And I'd already understand what was on my plate looked at the schedule. I am like ready to work as soon as I am dressed and ready to go. But in my pajamas, which are like long sleeve pants and a long sleeve shirt, because it's kind of cold in the cabins, I would open the door in my pajamas, fly down the module, which is about the, the length of a school bus. And then I hook a right to go to the, the next school bus size module, which is where we have the exercise equipment and the all important bathroom. We all take turns there pretty quickly, and I would say a good four minutes after I have left my cabin, I am on the radio with Mission Control in the Daily Planning Conference. We talk about some things they've already told us, but they want to make sure we really, really understand. They give us any news from overnight about the Earth, um, about the experiments, about what's going on, and then we are off to the races. Looking at a timeline, if you look at it, it's got six people's names and a timeline going across and literally every five minutes is scheduled and none of those are for bathroom breaks. There's about 30 minutes for lunch. Pretty much work no matter what a 12 hour day. Um, I would say sometimes even longer, but you're scheduled pretty much for a 10 hour day 
that also includes exercise, which we do to stay healthy. So you're going from one thing to the other. You look on the timeline, oh, I'm doing that experiment. I've done that before. I remember I have to get that stuff out early. Some of it has to kind of thaw. So you go off and maybe get that thing out early while you're having a little break while another thing is like you turn it on and it's sort of spinning up and you're waiting to see if it's calibrated. So you're always thinking about two or three experiments ahead. And I would say the biggest struggle is to manage all those things and also communicate to the folks on the Earth who are really running those experiments too, what's going on on the space station. And one of the big discoveries that we had was leaving the cameras on for the people on Earth. So that even though they, you don't always know what you're doing, Um, They can see that I have gotten out this bag and I have both hands in there unpacking something. I am holding something under one elbow, something between both feet, and I'm like, and and something in my teeth. And they realize this is not the time to call me on the radio and ask whether I like the temperature or not. And so really just by sharing that insight, the more they know about our world, the more they can blend. And I actually like the idea of having a camera on mission control that shows us that these are real people, not just voices that sometimes voice up things that we just think, oh, really, do you think we really don't know that? And so it's often, a, I think the biggest challenge in our world is the communication between uh, the earth and the ground. And so we work hard at that all day long. I was the, the most proud of Basically being part of the start of what I knew would be something so important to every space station mission going forward. And that was being the second person to capture a supply ship using the Canadian robotic arm. And the reason it's really challenging and a big deal to do that on a space station is because the space station is like as big as a factory. It it is actually as big as a football field. And we live along the 50-yard line. So in, in, in about 10 modules that are like the size of train cars, but all the seats are out of them. So it's not small and tiny and, and nasty. It's spacious and big and amazing and, and wonderful. But it is huge. It is that, that sort of size, like football field size. And so when a supply ship comes, a supply ship is like the size of a train car. And when it comes up, we don't have time to move the factory. So it's very dangerous. And so we have to really do our best to make sure that we've made sure that everything is going to happen right. And for me, that was being the person on the controls of the robotic arm with Paolo Nespoli from Italy as my co-pilot. And together, as a very integrated team, we made that capture and grabbed that supply ship at a time when we're, you know, both vehicles are going 17,500 miles an hour. But more importantly, um, there, there's five different control centers down on the ground. There's a Japanese control center that it's their supply ship, and they own the communication box between the supply ship and the space station. There's all these people involved who all have their own little worlds. And basically, as the astronauts on the space station, our job was to integrate all these people with their own mission, their own way of life, and realize that together we had one mission. And I was very proud of being a part of basically making the fabric for all of those people in control centers to relate to each other for the many, many supply ships to come. And now it's something that happens a couple times a month.
out when you're working and when you're not. On the space station, it is much like Earth, except that I would say that the mission seems just imperative all the time. And yet, if you actually work 18 hours a day, every day, I mean, this is a marathon. You're up there for at least six months. You're not going to be able to bring your whole self to the table if you work like that all the time. And I used to think that, oh, I would work every weekend, all the, but you really, you're really tired. And partly because you are multitasking for a good, good 12-hour day. And if, you're, if everything is going well in your lane, so to speak, with your experiments, with your activities, then you need to be listening to how everybody else is doing. And if anybody needs help, no matter which part of the space station or what country they come from, you're going to go and offer that help. Or even more ideally, you're going to understand what that help is and you're just going to show up with it. And that help just might be lunch. You know, it might just be, you know, hey, I'll watch that while there's five minutes here if you want to run to the bathroom. And then if nobody else needs help, you should be taking a picture or a video of them at work. And it should be a good one. And so that is a whole bunch of challenges that makes every day, every day really busy. And at the same time, you have to take some time for yourself, partly to do the things, the things that make you human. For me, that would be things like music. It would be lessons for kids. It would be telling my girlfriends back home that I would, I, I often would have virtual coffee with my sister's girlfriends. And I wanted to be able to be, to show up for virtual coffee. And sometimes I would just make a little recording for them. So the things that make you a human, a person, it's really so important to do those things. And if I went back, I would stop my day exactly at the end of the day, no matter how important I thought it was to keep going. And I would make sure that I did more of those things that were my, sort of my humanity or helped someone else bring theirs. do exist. On Friday night is often our night for group dinner because it's just by the time we get to Friday, most of us are really out of gas. And, and we're people that are pretty good at be, working pretty hard and being pretty busy. But that's the night that we maybe sit around and watch a movie or do our own thing because you're just, just mentally exhausted. Saturday morning for the first half of the day is house cleaning and everybody has their chores. It's just really a lot more fun to basically fly around with a vacuum. I felt like, you know, sort of like a witch or something, you know. You have like the vacuum canister and you can even hold it between your feet and then you're you're just kind of using your hands to pull yourself along and we vacuum all the vents that the air gets recycled through and that's where things are stuck and sticky. And that's also where you th find the things that you have lost all week. I would say I spend at least half of Sunday um, getting ready for Monday and getting ready for the week. I mean, if you did everything exactly on the timeline, you'd always be behind. And so being prepared, understanding what things are easy and what things are hard with your week coming up. But the best thing is Saturday afternoon or Sunday morning. Once a week when I was on the space station, we would get to have a video conference with our family. And they, NASA puts a computer with a webcam in our family's home, or these days I think they actually have laptops and they're a little more mobile. And for my family, what this meant was it was open house at Katie's house on Sunday mornings. 
and people would come through and I would end up giving tours with the flying around with the laptop and the webcam and I would say and this is where I sleep and this is where this experiment is and do you want to look out the window and they can look on the map and see that the space station is going over South America and I can say and see there's Chile every part of the world has a different texture and you can see the mountains feel sort of sharp here and so weekends are our times that we get to do some of these things that we brought up at sort of as private citizens to do play music um, talk about things that we think are, you know, special that people would like to understand about space. We're allowed to bring things in different capacities. In a personal capacity, our stuff fits kind of in a sandwich bag. But then there's some official cap capacities because NASA really respects sharing and discovery. And it was in that way that I was allowed to bring a flute for the chieftains, actually a flute and a penny whistle for this uh, renowned Irish band, and a flute for Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull, who I respected very much for bringing the flute to rock music and making, making it so somebody like me could express themselves, not just sitting in an orchestra. And so I got to actually play these uh, up in space. It was my thing that I would do actually after that hour of the night when I was supposed to be sleeping. And I would go to the cupola and just float there looking at the earth and playing music, often listening to um, my band that I played with down on Earth, made up of several astronauts, Bandela. I would often uh, listen to them in, in the background and play along. And that was my way of, of practicing and having my, my friends and that, that feeling of doing something special together. And I also brought things that I, I thought would be meaningful to different people to say, to say thank you. Um, I brought a t-shirt for Doctors Without Borders. I brought a t-shirt for Folk Alley because that was the music that I listened to. You get to pick what you listen to up there. And I was the first person to request NPR, which was just the way I get my news. So it was nice to have that. And and of course, for my for my kid, you get to bring some books. And I brought books that my my kid liked to read. And that was one way that we really got to stay together as a family. You know, you can only say hello. And I think this applies to many of the people deployed around the world that are separate from their families. And you can say hello and how are you and how's your day. But after a while, that gets a little bit old. And my son was 10 and we were reading a book called Peter, Peter and the Star Catchers, where it's got smart boys and smart girls and fairy dust and sword, sword fighting and everything. And I just say, well, hey, I thought I'd read a little of the book. Well, that'd be okay. And by reading aloud, even though he couldn't see me, just gave us a way to be together. A moment that was, or I, I guess I'll, I'll say a time that was a, a very special time for all of us on the space station was actually a, a, a hard moment, which was that um, Paolo's mom passed away unexpectedly. You know, as a crew, 
it, it could be, it's such how everyone deals with those things differently. And Paolo was generous enough to basically share that time, allow us to understand how he was doing, what he wanted, what would make him feel better. Uh, and of course, on the ground, everyone really wants to make that happen as well. And part of our job as a crew was to kind of shelter him from all the different possibilities, give him the set of possibilities and say, Paolo, what do you want to do? And it was agreed that we would, we would be present at his mom's funeral. And we would all gather in the fu- in the in the cupola, and uh, and just be together. And it turned out, and I, I was the person that actually figured this out when I just thought we should see where we're going to be at, at that exact moment. And we were over Italy, and so the 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 kindness was really something that Paolo shared for us was that he was willing to to share that moment with us and make. I mean, everyone was sad for him. Everyone wished they could do something, and he allowed us to. I think we all craved texture, and that manifested itself, I think, thanks to Paolo, our Italian, into pizza. And we really, really, really wanted pizza. It, it was a real discovery for me. I mean, Paolo's from Italy, and if I wanted to find out how Paolo was, I mean, eating on the fly was just not, that was not going to be the way to discover how Paolo was. And if I was, I'd be working, and, and I'd, he'd say, hey, you want to eat? i go, hey, Paolo, I'm going to be another hour. He goes, oh, wait. Because it was really an important time to talk together and to sort of digest the day and figure out what the thing is for the next day and complain to somebody that, oh, this happened again. I hate it when they do that. And it's just this really human necessity. And But my favorite thing I have to share about Paolo is that, and I think it shows that everyone brings a different value to the team, is that Paolo sees in a very visual way. And in the node one, this is where we would eat, and it's the middle of the space station. You have to go through there to get the Russian segment, through there to get to the U.S. segment, and that's where the kitchen table is. And the kitchen table is horizontal. You might wonder why. I mean, nothing is going to stay on the kitchen table. Horizontal, vertical, diagonal, it doesn't matter. Unless you tape it down, we would have duct tape down there so you could sort of stick things on there just kind of temporarily while we ate, or Velcro, or a bungee cord, right? And everybody had bruises on their hips from going to and coming from, you know, back and forth. And you would run into this table. It was right there. And as soon as the the first team of three left, now Paolo and Dimitri and I were the grownups. Within the hour, Paolo took down that table, figured out where to put it at a diagonal. I mean, vertical, we wouldn't have a place to gather and we really need to do that. But at a diagonal so that we had a place to gather, but it wasn't in the way. I mean, everybody sees things differently. And sometimes it's really important to act. In this world, we we have a lot of metrics. We have a lot of ways that we measure things. And there's testing and there's measuring and, you know, are you good at this? Do you know how to do this? Especially in school. 
And certainly that continues through the astronaut program. And we're, you know, certainly graded on, on most everything we do or someone's watching or deciding. And what I discovered in a, in a place where it's all about living and it's all about accomplishing a mission is that it's the, it's the things that are between the metrics that are really important. And that I discovered, you know, for myself that I, I have skills in really understanding how the team is doing and sort of literally knowing how to touch each person and make sure that they're doing okay for their day and they have what they need and they're, they've asked their questions or that maybe what I need to do for them is to leave them alone. I mean, all the, so I, I learned that I, you know, was somebody that could really be part of the fabric that made the mission work. And at the same time, the, the biggest thing to learn was that if I discovered that about myself, then everybody brought something, found something unexpected that they brought to the mission and that I really needed to understand what they felt like they brought and acknowledge it and embrace it. When you're on Earth, you're always feeling something, whether you're laying in bed or standing on your feet, but you feel something. And when you're floating inside the module and not touching anything, you can actually feel the clothes that you're wearing. But you really can't feel anything else until I have to break it to you. Um, it's just really a matter of time, and it's usually not. It's usually less than a minute before you actually run into something and float into something. But that that idea that you could almost feel physically feel nothing is really interesting. It can actually almost be a little scary. Hearing is loud. I mean, it's it's like being in a in a place in a, in a commercial airplane in a place with lots of fans and noise. And what's fascinating to me is that our speaking distance, our natural distance to communicate with each other is so much closer. And, and, and it's, it, it's much like it is in some foreign countries where their natural distance is just closer. And yet as Americans, sometimes we feel like we have to scooch back a little bit. And I really noticed this because I flew with each of two identical twins. And one I spent four and a half months with and really knew each other very well. And, and it was just, you just would float up to each other, be very close and say, hey, what about this? Do you want to do that? And then when his brother came on board for a shorter shuttle mission, I it just felt like the same person. And I found myself very close to him. And I looked at him and I go, you are not Scott. And he goes, nope, I'm Mark. <laughs> Smelling, you know, I have to talk about smelling just because everybody wants to know what space smells like. And, and I, I say, well, it depends on who you're with. And I was the new gym clothes police where I would go, boys, it is that day. New gym clothes. We wear the same clothes all the time, but gym clothes we have lots of. And actually, you know, it really just never smelled badly up there. And But then people kind of want to go deeper than that and understand the smell of space. And there is a smell that happens when a new ship arrives. And it's kind of like having a front hall. Like in, in like in a European or Norwegian house, you always have a, a door that opens and that's the place you're going to take your shoes off. It's kind of like having that like as an airlock, literally. 
And so when you open your hatch, because a new ship arrives, there's a little space that was exposed to space until the new ship arrived. And then that's the front hall. So you open it up and, and of course you've pressurized it, but it has this kind of little, kind of like, kind of like a taste of the back of your mouth taste. And which is that there's a lot of radiation space in space and it's oxidized a lot of things. And so you're really just tasting a, a lot of sort of things that are just like not, I don't know. It's just, it's just this kind of taste. makes me so curious to, to there, there's two ways for me looking down there's looking straight down and then you want to see more and more and closer like who lives there and what are they doing and are there highways and when we can see a lot of those things from space and it's fascinating like to, to I, I love the world at night I mean you can look and you can see the Nile and you see that most people are living or at least most power is close to the Nile you know, in, in terms of, you know, where are the people and what are they doing? So looking down, it's about being curious. But looking out and seeing the curve of the Earth, it's very clear that you're in a spaceship and you're sailing around the Earth. That's a very special place to be. it before I went to the space station, but it living on the space station, looking down, made it very clear that the Earth is a spaceship, and we all live there, and that we are the crew of Spaceship Earth. And I've always been somebody that wanted to, wanted to make sure that the crew worked together. And, and, and I, I, loved, uh, I loved when I was, a, I was an exchange student, when I was a student, um, high school student. I've done some experiences with the State Department in Brunei, in Dubai, and uh, in, in New Zealand. And, I, and I've traveled quite a bit around the world in training. And I consider all of these. I mean, I consider being an American astronaut deployed to Russia for six weeks at a time, several times a year, training in Japan, training in Canada, training in Europe all of these are exchanges and in every one of them you're 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 getting a little chance to sort of rediscover yourself and in a new environment realize that you could have different possibilities and that's something that excites me and learning what those possibilities might be often you're learning them from different people that you didn't expect would be your your new and closest friends that's what I think is the most wonderful thing about exchange is that, you know, by the definition of the world, there's some give and there's some take and there's discovery. And it's discovery you're not going to be able to make if you stay only in your the place you physically live, even though I will say I think there's a lot we can do when we venture in a virtual way if we're open-minded to really taking a look at who's behind that camera and what's behind that camera. But there's there's perspectives that I gained that I'll never forget. Um, going and talking at girls' schools in Brunei, where everyone was wearing a veil except for me. And yet, in just talking to them and answering their questions, they have the same questions that 
everyone else has, and they're just as eager to understand how do they take their place as the explorers that leave our planet and explore further. And that was very profound to me, to realize that in, in traveling the world over. That's a very human thing, and it's the same for all of us, and that's why, by definition, we explore together. Twenty-two-thirty-three is produced by the Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Worst. I'm the director of the Collaboratory. Twenty-two-thirty-three is named for Title Twenty-two, Chapter Thirty-three of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, former astronaut Katie Coleman shared stories about her three missions to space, including her six-month stay on the International Space Station. Since retiring, Katie has begun participating in ECA speaker programs, sharing her incredible experiences with audiences around the world. For more about speaker programs and other ECA exchanges, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233, and we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ECA Collaboratory at state.gov. That's ECA C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage. That's at eca.state.gov slash twenty two thirty-three. And we encourage you to follow us on Instagram at twenty two thirty-three stories. Special thanks to Katie for taking the time to share her amazing stories with us. Ana Maria Sinatine and I did the interview, and I edited this segment. Featured music was Alatin by Gustav London. Heavenly Motion by Briley Christopher Oxley. Funeral Day by Julian Alio. Dreams in Blue by Josh Woodward. And Entwined Oddity, Greylock, and Kid Cody, all by Blue Dot Sessions. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came. And the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time.